You are listening to Gangland Wire, hosted by former Kansas City Police Intelligence Unit Detective Gary Jenkins. Welcome all you wiretappers out there back here in the studio of Gangland Wire. I say the same thing over again, but I think people like that familiarity. I I have on a Zoom call and be on the audio podcast too, uh, my good friend, part-time co-host, really, uh, Cam Cambulus Robinson. Welcome, Cam. Hey, Gary, how you doing? Glad to be back. You know, Cam first got hold of me. Uh, he was really just a fan, I think. <laughs> and he sent me an email. <laughs> right. He said he appreciated how I did my research. And, and that's what he liked about the show. So I got in touch with him and we talked a little bit. And and I realized he he liked to do that kind of research. And, and uh, I, I could always use some help uh, on the show. So uh, I said, hey, let's do a show together. And Yeah. And he's actually researched a lot of the shows that I've done uh, because I got busy on that movie I did uh, about theft. And and I depended on him quite often to help me get a show out every week or at least three times out of the month. And and he did all the research and I just kind of trailed along and acted like I knew something. But uh, Cam does know his stuff. I'll tell you right now, folks, Cam knows his stuff and he does the research and uh, uh if he says it, it's it's going to be right on as factually as you can get any kind of information like that. It, sometimes it's hard to decide, figure out between the myth and the 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 facts. But anyhow, I I think we both try and double check what we say before we put it out there, Gary. That's what I that's what I really liked about what uh, what you were putting out. So we try and uh, we try and trust but verify, right? <laughs> right. Even though sometimes I might. <laughs> Not let the facts get in the way of a good story. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Well, that's the uh, that's the life that we're studying, right? <laughs> right. That's for sure. That's the thing about this life, the mob life. There's so much myth out there that it's sometimes hard to, to, to oh yeah learn, and and that's one of those myths. Even up to modern times, is really pervasive, and that's about who really killed Joey Gallo. Uh, I think we've got down to what we think is who really did it. But boy, there's a lot of people that, that really believe Frank Sharon killed Joey Gallo, mainly because of the movie. But there were yeah. other people be- before the movie that believed that because he wrote a book that said he did it. And a couple other reasons why they, they kind of pegs that they hung their hat on, if you will. But let's start out talking a little bit about Joey Gallo. Crazy Joey. Joey the blonde. He had blonde chest hair. Uh, <laughs> that's uh, that's rare among us uh, Italians. I can. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't yeah. fall into that category. I can tell you. He he must have been a northern. <laughs> he must have some northern Italian. <laughs> right. in him. Uh, somebody from up there around Florence or something or right. Uh, but, you know, he was a unique guy. Uh, he was truly in, in the mob world. He was unique. He, he was crazy. And I believe later on they, he was diagnosed by some uh, probably prison psychologist as having mental, being mentally ill, whatever that was exactly. Do you remember what that was? Um, I schizoid tendencies or something. You see that a lot. You see that a lot with the mob guys though. So it's hard to know if that was a real diagnosis or if another, another I'm putting on, you see, I can name four or five guys who, when they were in prison and it, and it, you know, I guess they're all sociopaths, but you see a lot of them when they're trying to get out of the service or trying not to go to the military and they, 
they flunked the test with flying colors and I'm sure most of them earned it, but uh, it does seem to be a, a preponderance of, of, of guys who, who don't do well on those psychiatric exams. But I think Joey earned his, uh, the natural way. Yeah. Uh, of course he was a young mobster came out of red hook. Uh, but uh, a little later in his life where he got so famous and so well known uh, before we go back into his, early life, uh, his last stint in the penitentiary, he had, he had some kind of awakening, I would say. And mm-hmm. he had a pretty good bit to do. He did about 10 years and in 10 years, you, you can either go down the pits, uh, or you can improve yourself. And I know a lot of guys I've known and a lot of people out here, former mobsters that, that I talked to today, uh, have done that and they've tried to improve themselves and, and lead a different life. Now he didn't ever want to lead a different life over the mobster's life, but when he's a penitentiary, my research led me to believe that he, uh, he read and read and read a lot. He even learned the Evelyn Wood speed reading technique, which yeah. a lot of you younger guys won't know that. It was a famous speed reading technique. I don't remember exactly how it worked, but, uh, you know, and, and when he came out, he, he picked up on popular culture when he came out. A lot of mobsters are like in Kansas City. Nick Savella was real conservative. He didn't want his any his guys to grow long hair or beards. And during the 60s and 70s, when everybody else was, even and with the young guys started growing long hair and beards, he, he would uh, he, he would say something and uh, get rid of that shit. Don't look like a hippie. You know, they almost killed one guy. Probably they did kill him. Uh, and some of the things they were saying was they didn't trust him anymore. Now that he became a fucking hippie. So, uh, but he, when he came out, he got on the popular culture. He was dressing the part of a New York hipster in the 1950s mm-hmm. and sixties. Uh, he was a classic movie gangster. He, he'd have like a dark shirt and a white tie and a pinstripe suit. Yeah. I, you know, when he went before the, uh, that, that, that infamous scene, when he got called before the McClellan and he said, Oh, this would be a good carpet for uh, to shoot dice on. He, <laughs> He, he remarks in this book that that he they wanted a gangster, so he was going to give him a gangster. I mean, that was that was that entire thing was an act. I mean, he knew the gangster that people wanted, and in yeah. different crowds, he could just uh, he could mold himself to whatever the crowds wanted. He was uh, he knew how to read a room. Yeah, it was. Uh, that's the one where he wore the sunglasses inside. Right, right. That, that was that was like a bombshell among the conservative uh, <laughs> law enforcement people today, where he didn't have the respect for that uh, commission to, to even take his sunglasses off. So he was, he was something else. He and he got to know uh, because of this. He, he's in New York. He's in Manhattan. He gets to know sophisticated New Yorkers, and and I just heard a saying from somebody. Uh, I told this guy, uh, guy, a uh, Springfield, Massachusetts mobster named Chicky Chickatelli, who is he's connected with John Gotti Jr. right now. There, there's something coming up in the media that, that he's a part of, and Gotti Jr. is going to do. I don't know what, but but he made a statement. He said everybody wants the bandit to get away. And I remember Smokey and the Bandit. We all pulled for the bandit to get away. And, and, and I, he said that about mob guys and, and the popularity of mob guys today. And he said, everybody likes the bandit to get away. And I said, man, I'm going to use that. He said, well, it's not really mine. He said, I got it from Gotti Jr. So I don't know, but, <laughs> but we all like the bandit to get away. And, and so that, that's what happened with Joey Gallo. Everybody likes the bandit to get 
way. They don't want to be the bandit and, and they don't want to have too much attention paid to him by the bandit, but they want him to get away. And, and, and he got to yeah. know people like Ben Gazar and Peter Falk uh, in yeah. New York, who were kind of a, you know, kind of a rounder kind of guys, if I remember right. And, uh, the playwright, Neil Simon and, and people like that. He, uh, Modern reference. You've got Jerry Orbach, who was on Law and Order for so long, who played right. the uh, the detective on Law and Order. That was a uh, Jerry friends. and Marta Orbach. Yeah. Yeah. Matter of fact, he was in the restaurant. Orbach and his wife were in the restaurant just when he got killed. Or did they see him? Oh, they saw him at the Copacabana just right. before and invited him to come eat with them. And, and he didn't come, which I bet Orbach's glad he didn't go eat with, with uh, <laughs> Gallo that night. So, uh, you know, another thing is there's a famous book by, uh, uh, if you're of a certain age, you'll remember this book by New York columnist Jimmy Breslin, uh, The Gang That Couldn't Shoot Straight. It was about the gallows and their war, their first war with the Persicos and, and then the Colombo family. It's uh, uh, And they say that uh, Coppola used some of those situations and incidents that, that Breslin talked about and that really happened during that mob war. The, the saying, going to the mattresses, that came out of that book, uh, uh, Jimmy Breslin. And, and these guys, you know, they rent an apartment and throw mattresses down and and they'd all hang out, hide out there until they went out to, to do battle with some of the opposed, kill one of the opposing uh, uh, family members that, that were, they were in a war with. So, but... Cam found this uh, a book. It was a first-person account from a Greek associate of the Gallo crew, and his name was Peter Diapolis. Would you say that was a way to say that, Diapolis? Yeah, Pete the Greek Diapolis, yeah. Pete the Greek. Uh, so it was uh, – when was that published? It was published back in – I want to say it was 73, 72 or 73. I mean, because they put it out right after, right after Gallo uh, – would have been right after Gallo. I've got a first edition here. Let me see. It's uh, uh, 76. So, yeah, okay. it was right after he, he let a little bit of time die out. And uh, he wrote this. Uh, Steve Lanakis, who wrote it with him, is also a Greek uh, who wrote for the New York Times. Okay. And they while they were writing it, they spoke a lot, spoke a lot of Greek together. Diapolis would only write it with a Greek uh, writer. Now, what's interesting is the title is The Sixth Family. And, you know, is that you think that's because the Gallo brothers, they had such a big and they did have a big crew. I, I looked it up and I found like 10 or 15 names of, of the Gallo crew. Uh, you never know exactly who's part of the crew and who isn't. But did they want to become the sixth family, make the Gallo family? Is that why it's called that the sixth family? I think so. I think I think if you look at uh, you could compare them to the Spiros in a way, I think they thought that that they had in their minds they could take over. I mean, you got during the first Persico war, I mean, you've got the gallows kidnapping all the leadership of, of, <laughs> of the Persico family and, and old man Persico checked himself into a hospital in uh, Florida to avoid anything happening to him down there. But they got the underboss and a couple of high ranking capos, a consigliere. I mean, it was, it, these guys meant business and they're just, they're just some kids. So uh, they were, they were all, they were a lot of them made guys because they killed uh, Anastasia. Uh, Gallo, uh, Joey, and his brother Larry were both made guys. The younger brother Albert was not. But you know, I think that they they had it in their minds that because they had a large crew, yeah, they could they could legitimize themselves and have the uh, the Gallo family. They they ran their street. They like you said, a lot of guys under them. So interesting. Now his parents, Umberto and Mary Gallo, were. Uh, from Italy, I believe, and, and 
his father was a prohibition era bootlegger, like many other immigrants. Uh, now here's one story I heard about Joey Gallo, which has kind of resonated with me and those of us of a certain age. There's a movie that came out in 1949 called The Kiss of Death. And I've seen these clips. Richard Widmark plays a gangster character that was the, he was the epitome of a gangster uh, in the 50s. His name was Tommy Udo, U-D-O. Udo. And, and he had this accent, the way he would talk. And they, it said that Gallo liked to talk like this. He kind of mimicked that guy. So check this clip out of Tommy Udo talking. <laughs> Double-crossing squealers, both of you. What's the matter? I don't know nothing. So the yellow squirt beat it, huh? Took a part of it, huh? That rat. Where is he? Where'd he go? I'm asking you, where's that squealing son of yours? <laughs> you think a... Squealer can get away from me. Huh? <laughs> you know what I do to squealers? I let them have it in the belly. So that sounds like a real gangster, doesn't it? Hey, that's that that is what you think of. I, I remember that movie from years ago. And yeah, that's that's what you think of when you think of gangster talk. <laughs> So, uh, oh, I see now, I, I look back at my notes. It was uh, when Gallo had a charge pending around this time, 49.50, he was diagnosed with mental illness in the Kings County Hospital Center in Brooklyn. They thought he was had schizophrenia. And they uh, claim that, that the cops first started calling him Crazy Joy, which makes sense. They, a lot of cops would maybe had access to that report. Mm-hmm. Now, now, this guy that wrote this book, Peter Diapolis, uh, Remember how he first met Crazy Joey? He he grew up with them on the street, if I recall correctly. The the Greek was one of the few uh, uh, non Italians in at Red Hook, if I'm if I'm remembering correctly. And uh, he knew them from the time they were kids. A lot of people didn't realize that that he was like he said he was with uh, Gallo when uh, when he was assassinated. But people didn't realize that, that the Greek was with them going way on back, you know, when they went to the mattresses with the Persicos and, and everything. And he references that a lot in his book, but the Greek had been with them for years back when Larry Gallo, the oldest brother was running the crew. He was loyal to Larry Gallo. And then when, when Larry, Larry died of cancer, while Joey was doing his, his bit in prison, Joey comes out of prison and takes over the crew from the youngest brother, Albert kid blast and Joey runs the crew until he dies. But uh, the Greek was a steady figure for years, uh, grew up more or less with them. So Pete the Greek talks about the murder of Albert Anastasia and kind of gives an insider view of that. Now, there's always, you know, there's there's a couple of different stories about who actually killed Albert Anastasia. And if you don't know that murder this is the murder. Albert Anastasia had his own family. He was called the, the Mad Hatter uh, or the what was the other nickname he had? Uh, the Executioner. The Executioner. He, he was one bad dude, one crazy dude. And uh, he was uh, he was really uh, what I remember about the situation. He was exerting his muscle, trying to push around some of the other mobsters, trying to move in on uh, some uh Lansky stuff down in uh, Cuba, uh, trying to expand his uh, uh, domain, shall we say. And 
uh, Joe Profaci didn't like that. And Profaci was an old school mobster and, and he got together with Vito Genovese is, is the story. And uh, Gambino was his under what Scalise was was uh, Anastasia's underboss. He was murdered. And then Carlo Gambino became Anastasia's uh, second underboss. So this, this is really the development of the uh, Manhattan, shall we say, New York City mafia families in the 50s. So uh, Profaci had uh, he had taken the Gallo brothers in as a crew under his crime family. He was immensely successful, but he was also notoriously tight <laughs> and he wouldn't pay anybody anything and wouldn't get and tried to get everything for himself. But Gallo was trying to, you know, he was trying to rise in that world. And uh, Pete the Greek claimed that uh, that they took on the, the contract to kill Albert Anastasia, which was a pretty bold move on anybody's part. He, he was a, he was a boss of one of the five families at the time. And they had uh, Profaci and Genovese behind him. I don't know if you, they knew exactly who all of the other bosses were behind them at the time. <laughs> Uh, it's always a dicey deal. Uh, you get caught, and then they, they, those bosses that had you do it will give you up. <laughs> and then right. Say, we didn't know anything about this. We got to kill them. But Pete the Greek, he, he claimed that, you know, he, uh, he laid it out pretty good. I don't know. You remember how he laid it out, Cam? Uh, you uh, go into it. It's uh, okay. Get- I got some notes here on that folks. It's it's hard to remember some of this stuff off the top of your head, but so uh, Larry Gallo, according to Pete, the Greek conducted surveillance on Anastasia and found that he went to this barbershop with a pattern. You know, you never want to get a pattern when you're in that life, but he went to this barbershop like, Every, a certain day every week. And I don't remember the day, but it was a certain day every week. So after a while, they like, okay, we could get him in the barbershop because it seemed like he relaxed in the bar, barbershop. Even his uh, his bodyguard that was always be with him would drift off while he was in the barbershop, in the barber's chair. So they tooled up uh, the, the Gallo brothers and, and what Pete the Greek claims is a guy named Joseph Gionelli and Carmine Persico. Uh, which uh, will who will turn on the gallows in the end, uh, and there was another guy all together, and it was a, it was a classic mob hit, and they had uh, they came up with a car, uh, the wheelman waited at the curb with a getaway car, another guy stood in the as a lookout there on the street, another guy inside in the hotel lobby, and then finally two men, and, and uh, there's another uh, classic is they dress identically. And just wear scarves around their mouths where you wouldn't really look with sunglasses on. So people wouldn't really, you know, wouldn't think too much about it. And it's really hard when people, two guys or three guys dress identically in a deal like that. Everything, all the details kind of blend in together. That's a really yeah. smart. If you guys want to go out and do a hit or do some kind of a robbery, uh, all of you uh, dress identically because it makes it a lot harder for people to, uh, to identify. You and and, and to, that's that's what they did with Gotti. Yeah, you know, or those Russian hats. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. Barber will relate that they came in, just started shooting, just walked in while he's in a chair, pushed the barber aside, just started shooting. Anastasia lunges out of the chair, uh, they said, towards his reflection in the mirror, probably the only thing you could see, and and then collapses immediately, and, and he'll die on the floor 
really before the emergency crews arrived. And if you they left his body there, because there's a ton of uh, photographs out there of, of him on the floor and people standing around. Back in those days, the police didn't lock down a scene so much as they do today. Uh, right. Photog- a good photographer, especially one that was already in with the, the cops, would uh, would have, uh, you know, bought him a lunch or uh, cup of coffee or knew, uh, you know, slipped him a few bucks every time they hit a crime scene, that photographer could get in close and, and get the money shot, as we say. You know, the hit team after the they murdered him, they just walked out of the lounge, out of the lobby, out into the lobby, disappear. Oh, just disappear out on the street because they got a car already waiting and, and they don't run. They don't make any extra moves. And I, I could be willing to bet that they threw those guns away. They drove pretty close oh, yeah. to the, the river, the East River or the uh, bay or whatever body of water was close and pitched those guns as soon as they got away. Uh, now, Diopolis will claim that uh, the Gallo brothers were all made as a result of that. I think Persico may have already been a made guy at that time. I'm not sure. But uh, that's that's a story about who killed Albert Anastasia. And that was really from a, a, a what we would almost call a primary source. Yeah, that would have been in the 50s. You know, they closed the books in, uh, uh, I want to say it was what, after Appalachian, right? Right at the end of the 50s when the FBI yeah. caught on. So that would have been in the uh, in the 50s. The books were pretty open at from from what we know. So, yeah, the uh, the gallows and Persico would have been some of the last guys last guys made. And uh, uh, so, yeah, that, that does that does tie up. Now, there is another story out there that a guy named Joseph Riccobono uh, and a couple other guys did this murder. But I, I don't know. Uh, I couldn't find that much about that. It's certainly not somebody that was that close to them telling the story. What do you think about that other story? You know, I, the only other thing that I've heard that makes much sense is there's a uh, there's a patriarcha guy who supposedly came up. I, I can't remember his name offhand. He's not Italian. Who supposedly came up uh, under patriarcha's orders to assist with the murder, and then he drove back down. There's a uh, Vinnie Teresa talks about this guy coming up okay. and driving back. Now, the reason that might make sense is because uh, Nikki Bianco, who was a, a member of the patriarcha family, was originally tied in with the Gallows, and then when the Gallows had their falling out with uh, Profaci. The Patriarcha family helped to mediate Henry Tamaleo, the underboss of the Patriarchas, helped to mediate the uh, the dispute. So there was there were close ties between the Patriarchas and the Gallows yeah. and uh, also between Genovese. So it is that's the only thing that I've heard that makes sense as far as placing anybody else with the Anastasias. His name was Kazarian or somebody who was who was at the scene was a Patriarcha guy who came up to assist. But I, that's the only one that really has any sort of ring of truth to it but that's you know as far as anything else i've heard the gallows with uh with persico is really the only one that makes sense and pete the greek's account really is the one that makes really lays it out makes sense and and he was real close to these guys he didn't go on Mm -hmm. it he wouldn't go he wasn't italian he he, right would not take him on that more than likely right Uh, i suppose he he could but they had plenty of people like, like, you know, the three brothers, you know, the brothers aren't going to rat each other out. So that's the safest way to do anything. You got the, right. the blood, blood uh, connection. You got the mob blood connection. So I, I don't know. I, I'll have to go with that. You know, it seemed like yeah. that, that meeting at the La Stella 
restaurant that the cops stumbled into supposedly or kind of a setup deal. Santo Traficante was up from Florida at the time. And he, they said that he was staying in that hotel, that Sheraton hotel. And he, he checked out the next day and went back to Florida. So, you know, who knows? <laughs> John, uh, John Nazarian was, that? I just, I just, I okay. just found him. John, John Nazarian was a patriarchal guy. That's the only one. And I, I don't know, but that's, the only addition to that story, whether he drove or was lookout, that has made any sense. Uh, the patriarchs might have might have played a role, but uh, I can't say. But you're right uh, uh, that it, that I was always pretty curious about uh, about uh, uh, Tampa being having breakfast with uh, with Anastasia and then flying out that morning. Yeah. So Naples. Uh, describes the Gallo crew as an outlaw crew, which makes sense. You know, you get those kinds of little things that really ring true and and that makes sense. And when you look at the makeup of it, uh, he had, uh, according to uh, Diopolis, he had, they had a Greek hymn, two Syrians, an Egyptian, a Puerto Rican, a Jew, an Irishman, about 14 or 15 Italians. So, Partridge in a pear tree. <laughs> really? Now, uh, Vic Amuso was in that crew and Carmine Persico was in the uh, Gallo crew when they were early. Uh, this Nick Bianco uh, was there and then he ends right. up going with the Patriarca family, as you mentioned. Uh, Michael Rizzatello was part of that crew and he yep. moved out to Los Angeles. So this was <laughs> this is kind of a, a training ground for a, a lot of yep. bosses over the next few years. That's a good way to put it. That's an interesting way to put it. Now, they had this meeting place on President Street in the Lower East Side, the uh, East Village Mafia, shall we say. I just interviewed an author about, did a book about the East Village Mafia. Uh, but, uh, you know, they had to, to do this Anastasia head, they had to have, they had to have the bosses behind them. That was too big a deal because mm-hmm. he was an old time, old school ally of Frank Costello. And, and we know uh, Vito Genovese and Frank Costello were were not exactly bosom buddies. And, That's right. And Costello just been shot. Right. So uh, I don't know, man. It's, uh, you know, sometimes you can't explain things or, you know, it, it's business as usual. If people wanted Anastasia out of the way. Uh, maybe uh, Profaci was easier to deal with. Now he didn't live much longer after that. Uh, can't remember who, who took over his, uh, Gambino and Gambino. That's right. Carlo Gambino took over the Profaci family. Took over the, uh, the, uh, Anastasia family. Or, I mean, Anastasia family. Uh, too many vowels, over? Gary, too really? many vowels. Who, who took over from Profaci? He didn't live that much. Joe longer. Magliocco. Joe, okay. All right. So, um, uh, you know, and here's a story that Pete the Greek told that I thought was it, it was indicative of what I mentioned about Profaci. Uh, Profaci, in the late 50s, he was mad at a bookmaker and a loan shark, a guy named Frank Abate Marco. Abate Marco, I'm not sure how you pronounce that. Uh, Abate Marco, yeah. Abate Marco. And, and in reality, he probably just wanted to get take the business away from the guy and get it for himself. But uh, he was mad at him for whatever reason. Uh, he ordered a gallo crew to kill him. Said that, that the guy owed me $50,000 and was withholding it just to protest. You know, said, you know, I, I'm not giving in to you anymore. And, and somebody did shoot and kill Abba Marco in a tavern in, in, over in Brooklyn. And most people believe that uh, Gallo brothers did this. Uh, other people, Joy Gallo, would claim that uh, 
that he didn't do it, but this event became the catalyst for the Gallo move against Joe Profaci, which started one of the early wars between the established crime families and the Gallo brothers. Uh, he didn't pay him. Uh, he didn't pay him hardly anything. He didn't. He, he promised that he would do more for him, and then he didn't do anything. Give him part of uh, about a Marco's rackets. His, right. uh, pol- his policy rackets. Right. That's what policy was. guy. So it was, uh, you know, it was, uh, he was notoriously tight-fisted and he pissed off the wrong people there. So shortly after that, they made a crazy play against Profaci, just to let you know a little bit about Crazy Joey Gallo and his brothers, true. Uh, They, this is just before Profaci died, they kidnapped his underboss, who became the bosses, as uh, uh, Cam mentioned, Joseph Magliocco. And four Capos, Profaci Capos, and one of them was Joe Colombo, which will come back into the story later on, won't it? Uh, they sent a, a message to Profaci that they wanted this bigger piece of the action and they didn't want to pay so much tribute. So they, they, they uh, uh, bargained back and forth. Uh, Gallows brought the plan to their crew who were all involved and, and Carmine Persico was involved in, with the crew. And what they wanted to do and what one of the Gallo brothers did was to just go ahead and give the uh, Profaci people back and then start negotiating. Uh, You know, it's like a a message. We're sending a message. Now you better negotiate with us. You know what I mean? Larry, the oldest brother who was who was running the Gallo crew at the time, I think he uh, right. he was into Joe and and Joe at the whole time is chomping at the bit. Let's kill one of them. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I had to send a message, wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> so Larry prevailed, and they released the hostages. And uh, and when they released the hostages, Profaci just declared war, and and they started. First, they stuck a guy. They, they hit a killed a guy named Joe Jelly, G O L E. What a hell of a name that is. Uh, that was the Gallo brothers. And, and this was where the fish wrapped in the newspaper story came from. Mm-hmm. After they killed him and they dumped him in the ocean, they sent a fish wrapped in a newspaper to Joe Jelly's wife. Then they, they, Profaci tried to pull a little trick on him. He, he had Carmine Persico in his pocket by then. And he and Gallo still thought he was part of their crew. Profaci offered to meet with Larry Gallo or send his driver, John Shimoni, to meet with Larry and talk about you know, some peace terms and maybe we can we negotiate this out. Well, Carmine Persico and another guy knew where this joint was and they got in there early and laid down in the booth then when Schiamone and Gallo got there, you know, he directed Gallo to the next booth over. And, and as soon as they sat down, Persico jumped up over the top of the seat, put a piece of rope over Gallo's head and starts uh, strangling him, grotting him, I think is the term. Mm-hmm. Isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and, and as he was dying, a beat cop opens the door and steps in right out of the Godfather, you know, and, right. <laughs> and, uh, Steps in and says, what the fuck's going on? <laughs> At that time, Persico and, and Schiamone, they run out the door. <laughs> they have a little gun battle with the police officer. And, uh, and, and, and in the melee, Persico gets up and gets away. And 
Gallo, of course, lives. Well, <laughs> that's where Carmine Persico got the nickname the snake, is my understanding. Mm-hmm. Is that your understanding on that? Yeah, that's uh that was he was the snake, he was the double cross, he was yeah. Shifty guy. <laughs> that's that's two double crosses you figure. He he turned on Profaci and then he turned on the uh the gallows. <laughs> really? The gallows hated him after that. Joey goes to Joey goes to the penitentiary after that. He's uh, he's trying to extort some money on a, mm-hmm. from a, a guy named Teddy Moss who was wired up. And uh, Profaci sends word out to Moss that hey, I'll protect you if you'll go ahead and testify against Gallo. And and he did. And and he got I don't know eight or nine years in the penitentiary. Yeah. Ten years. That's that's dirty in that world. I mean, uh, you know, I I got. In the mob world, for a mob boss to offer to protect somebody to testify, I mean, y- y- you know, Gary, that's that's not something you hear about in the mob world. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, if somebody wants to protect themselves, I'm, I'm, I'm fine. I'm not saying people shouldn't, shouldn't, shouldn't testify, but for a mob boss to set somebody else up to testify, that seems to break some of their rules. I would think. <laughs> yeah. Well. <laughs> But anyhow, uh, uh, Crazy Joy goes to the penitentiary and, and for this period of time, and that's when he starts improving himself, as I talked about before. But he also makes some connections, and this is when he makes connections with black gangsters. There was a mm-hmm. real well-known Harlem heroin dealer named Nicky Barnes who became famous as the, you know, almost like the uh, uh, the guy before him was the godfather of Harlem, I believe. But uh, Nicky Barnes was a really big-time uh, heroin dealer in Harlem. If if you've seen the movie American Gangster, right? About, uh, Frank Lucas, um, uh, 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 Cuba Gooding Jr. plays uh, Leroy Nicky Barnes. Okay, and so uh, Bumpy Johnson ran uh, Harlem before the two. Right, of them. right. That's the that's the Godfather of Harlem series right. with Forrest Whitaker, and that was that he was the first one uh, that kind of threw in with um, you know, what was the prostitute's name there. Uh, Queenie, um, Queenie something, but they, they, they really ran all the rackets in Harlem and yeah. dealt with the Italians. Uh, and, and then it was, uh, uh, Bumpy Johnson. I mean, then it was, uh, uh, Frank Lucas and this Nicky Barnes. Yeah. But uh, he connected with Nicky Barnes there, Barnes, there were people trying to, uh, to kill Gallo and beat him up. And, and once he connected with Nicky Barnes, well, he, the, the large black contingency of men in the penitentiary, Nicky Barnes controlled. And, and from then on the, uh, nobody went after Joey Gallo in the penitentiary as long as he was close to Nicky Barnes. Yeah, it was it was dangerous for him because the the uh, the Persicos could still get him in prison. Right. So he was he was in as much danger in as he was out. Now Barnes would later say that uh, he called him Crazy Joey. He said Crazy Joey, Crazy Joey loved hijacking trucks. He wanted to get do some business with me and my people to hijack trucks. Uh, said Gallo mentored him in uh, mafia business practices and how uh, how it needs to be more organized, kind of like John Gotti did with the Aaron Brotherhood. It always appeared to me and that one guard I knew that that was in there that watched Gotti <coughs> meet with the Aaron Brotherhood people every day, he always <coughs> sat at the table with them. And, and he said, it seemed to me like to the guard that the Aaron Brotherhood 
calmed down, became more businesslike in their uh, illegal activities. They were still doing all, you know, controlled all the dope in the penitentiaries and had a, a, a big uh, uh, operation outside the penitentiaries, you know, nationwide. And, and he just felt like that, that they listened to Gotti and, and, and modeled themselves along Gotti and mafia, more businesslike lines. Uh, so uh, Nikki Barnes did create a commission himself and, uh, uh, Several other guys, uh, uh, five man like commission. Yeah. yeah, interesting. Well, during this time, actually, during this time, Daplis did tell us one story uh, about how he and Larry Gallo and Nikki Bianco tried to kill Carmine Persico. They set a remote control underneath the hood of his car, a bomb, sat back and watched, and, and they had noticed that. Every time he'd go get in his car, he'd raise the hood and check for bombs. So he figured that would be the time that uh, that he would they would so throw the switch when he raised that hood. The guy that was supposed to throw the switch didn't throw it when he raised the hood. And then Persico didn't see the bomb, but he got inside the car and they set off the bomb then. But it wasn't set in a place where uh, where it would kill anybody, kind of like uh, Lefty Rosenthal out in Las Vegas. <laughs> the, the bomb wasn't in a good place and it wasn't big enough. Yeah, that's the sparrows could help him with that, putting 23 sticks under his car. <laughs> <laughs> really? Y'all in Kansas City don't play with that dynamite. Yeah, that, and, and when that last sparrow got killed, they put so much dynamite under that little uh, used car office that he was in that it blew him and his wheelchair clear out through the roof and out into the parking lot. <laughs> That's the way that if you're going to kill somebody with a bomb, you got to have enough to kill them. <laughs> but, you know, in New York City, you got people walking down the street and you do not want any collateral. The mob does not like collateral damage. I'll no. say that. <laughs> but and I, and I think like that uh, Savella Spiro deal here in Kansas City, they knew they were sitting and watching. And and he knew he was in that building by himself, and there mm. wasn't it, they could see the whole lot, and you couldn't see anybody else around. And so, you know, they had it underneath the office. So I would imagine if there'd been anybody came in with him, they just wouldn't have hit the switch until some other time, as which they could catch him in there. Just wait till he got in there by himself. Hell, they might have tried it two or three other times and, and right. catch him by himself because uh, we have never had any collateral damage from bombings in you know in kansas city and i don't know about other cities i i can't think of any uh, there may be maybe in cleveland i don't know they did a lot of bombing in <laughs> cleveland what i i hadn't heard of anything but uh i like you said they're pretty careful i mean bombs are usually either send a message or to uh you know i i you know they are very careful with 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 bombing so let's talk a little more about Diapolis. Uh, he talks about how uh, Joe Colombo kind of like started moving up. He ends up being the boss of the old Profaci family and it becomes a Colombo family. Colombo knew that Carlo Bambi Gambino was, uh, had, was ambitious, shall we say. He thought maybe mm -hmm. Gambino wanted to uh, be the capo de tutti di capo and, and the boss of all bosses. And uh, he uh, uh, kind of modeled himself after that. He, he exposed a plot to kill Gambino. And Gambino then made sure that Joe Colombo was the boss of the Profaci family as Magliocco uh, went away. And, yeah. Joe, uh, Joe Bonanno 
and uh, Joe Magliocco, the boss, of the, the this the new boss of the Profacci's, came up with a plan to kill uh, uh, Carlo Gambino, Tommy Lucchese, and uh, uh, Frank uh, De Simone in yeah. L.A. Uh, Bonanno wanted to take over Los Angeles, and then they wanted to. Uh, Gambino and Lucchese were considered the liberal members of the commission. And so they wanted to take over the commission. And there's, there's some people who say they were going to kill uh, uh, Magadino up in Buffalo, but they figured they could take control of the commission and Bonanno place himself as uh, Capa de Tutti Capi. And Colombo, who had a long history of doing heavy work, was supposed to be the guy who, who was in charge of it all. And instead, he went to Gambino, like you said, because he knew that Gambino was a was a sharp guy who was a, a, a dangerous guy. And he told Gambino and Lucchese about the plan. Now, that was a good move on his part. Because um, Gambino, well. Gambino did rise and, and Colombo became the boss. And and uh, Larry and Albert Gallo brokered a piece with Joe Colombo. Uh, now, here's kind of an interesting little story that, that Pete the Greek tells is that the commission appointed this Nick Bianco, who had been a Gallo member of the crew, to represent the Gallo crew and to sit down with the Colombo family to try to get over this Colombo war. But they brought in Raymond Patriarca from New England to right. negotiate, and they agreed on peace. And, and what's really interesting is then Nick Bianco ends up transferring up to New England under Patriarca and spent the rest of his my career as a member of the Patriarca family. It's kind of like if, if you uh, watch somebody in another unit at work or another division or whatever, say, hey, I like the way that guy works. He's, he's pretty good. Uh, can I get him? Let me see if I can get him to transfer to my unit or my division. So, uh, Mom <laughs> works the same way, I guess. Right, right. <laughs> I first read that and I thought, well, what the hell? You know, he really ended up a pretty pretty high-ranking guy, Bianco. I guess he, he he must not have been made in the Profacci's, but yeah, once he transferred to the Patriarca, he got, uh, he made his way, way on up. Yeah, well. Um, he may have been, I'm, I'm trying to remember if he was boss in the 90s. I think that when they had that huge bust of the uh, Patriarca family, Bianco, who, Bianco kept himself pretty low. Oh, uh, yeah. He, I think he became the boss in the in the 90s once they wiped everybody out. Huh. I didn't really remember that. It's, like we were saying earlier, it's kind of hard to keep up on all the details and all the different <laughs> families. <laughs> but back to Joey Gallo, all this is going on while he's in the penitentiary. And he's like, you know, he's educating himself and he's developing this persona. Reading a lot of existentialism, a lot of that Jean-Paul Sartre and a lot of Albert he? Camus. And ah. yeah, changing his way he looks at, at life and what means what and what's important and what what isn't and yeah he uh, yeah I've, I've read some of that myself and, and it's like life you know to them life is meaningless mm-hmm. so you just make whatever meaning you want out of it right and so gallo you know he <laughs> if life's meaningless meaningless don't try to take on somebody else's meaning just you know, make your own meaning out of life, you know, do what you want. And when he came out, he was like a different guy. I think it seemed that's when he started hobnobbing with celebrities and, and becoming this celebrity gangster. I wonder if he had, you know, and this is, this is kind of an odd way, but he had just come out of a war and a lot of that existentialism came out of, of, of world war one. And you wonder if somebody who had been day to day living with the idea that they might be dead at any minute yeah. and people shooting at them, you know, have some, some, little bit of PTSD and that sort of 
uh, understanding that that all things are, you know, it, it, it you accept that 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 life and death is what it is, you know, that sort of shaded his view that living so close to death and uh, uh, as he did for so long in that war, you know, kind of a, a PTSD almost with really? uh, with Gallo. Bless the penitentiary. Um, mm-hmm, that's you're, right. You're living next to death every day in the penitentiary. That's right. Now you you can get comfortable. You can get protection from some people, but still you're you're vulnerable as hell in the penitentiary. They're just yeah. Uh, that's a good point. Uh, it's a tough world. That's a good point. So Pete the Greek tells a few stories. Once he <laughs> he decides he's out. His brother, who Larry is dead of cancer. You know, Joey's now the boss. He's the strongest personality of this crew and and the boss. He's back out. Uh, Joe Colombo tries to meet with him and offer him some money as a peace gesture. Uh, well, well, the story Pete DeGreek tells, he only offered him a thousand bucks. I don't know mm-hmm. what the deal is with that, but uh, uh, that could be like a could be like an insult. And Gallo did, wouldn't even attend the meeting. And for immediately what he starts doing is planning on killing Joe Colombo because uh, he thought he ought to be the boss of the old Profazzi family. So Pete the Greek starts telling stories about some of the many plots to kill Joe Colombo before he actually gets killed, which is, you know, one of those stories to this day is argued about on, on right. how the, who did that and, and how that went down, which it is. It's one of the strangest stories to me and mobbed him. That, that absolutely can, it's just like what the i mean remember at the time reading it in the newspapers like what the hell i kind of wonder if frank sheeran did it <laughs> really <laughs> and then killed jerome johnson <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> gave him up as, as a scapegoat kind of like this right. kind of like the uh uh uh, uh jfk killing lee rv oswald lee yeah. oswald you know they just they just shoved the black guy in there and, and reached around him and, and shot and killed Joe Colombo and then said, hey, look what this guy did. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Let's kill him. Right. <laughs> and they did. <laughs> well, hey, folks, thanks a lot for listening and come back next week for the second half of the life of Crazy Joey Gallo. Well, folks, that ends a, another Gangland Wire episode. I uh, really appreciate you tuning in and listening. However you listen to it, whether it's on the website or on one of the apps, I also want to express my thanks and sincere appreciation for the kind reviews that you've given me uh, on the app or the Apple app or, or some of the other podcast apps. I don't check them. I used to check them when I first did this. I checked them a lot, but I don't check them anymore so much. Once in a while, I look at them. Uh, sometimes I get, you know, sometimes I get my feelings hurt, especially on YouTube, but that's okay. Uh, if you put yourself out there, you, you better not have a thin skin. I've learned that. Uh, you know, my most recent documentary, I really want to express uh, uh, extra appreciation to the people who stepped up and helped me finance that movie and, and able to increase the production values, uh, hired a professional to do the reenactment scenes and some of the other things and, and got some better music I had to pay for. And we have it out now. Now, the last time I did one of these endings for the uh, uh, podcast. I, I had a different title. I changed the title just at the last minute. It's now about theft, burglary, murder, and cover up. So I encourage you to come on the website. I can't get it on Amazon like I have Brothers Against Brothers and Gangland Wire. 
because they changed their rules. And if I can't get a theatrical release like a major film studio or get it in a major film festival, which is kind of like, uh, um, uh, I don't know what it's like. It's, it's, it's dang near impossible unless you're politically connected to some of the people that run these film festivals. And a guy like me uh, doesn't really have a chance. It's been my experience. I fought that a few years back and, and I gave up. It's, it's too much effort for uh, too little payoff. Uh, but if you want to stream it, it's on my website for $1.99. I figured out a way to do that. And uh, you, you, you pay me $1.99 and I will send you a link to stream it. As well as my other two movies, you want to stream them for $1.99. Of course, I have the DVDs for sale. Or if you make a donation, why uh, I'll give you the DVD and give you a streaming uh, link too. Or a book or Kindle book, whatever you want. Yeah, you guys kind of know the drill by now. If you've been listening to it, if not just go to my donate page. I uh, uh, one last thing. I've kind of uh, dogged off on this PTSD thing. I used to always uh, uh, want to try to promote that. So uh, if you've been listening to podcasts, you know what to do. But uh, if you have any problems with PTSD and you know and you're a veteran, then you know go to the VA. If not, go to the VA website. Or just Google VA hospital PTSD, and they've got a hotline, and they've got a lot of resources. And even if you're not a veteran, or if you just know a veteran, you can you can go there and find the resources. If you're not a veteran, you can go there and find resources. So I appreciate all your support over the years, and uh, we'll see you again next week, or listen to you next week, or you'll listen to me. Music provided by our good friend and super fan from Portland, Oregon, Casey McBride. Thanks, Casey. <laughs>